Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am coming to you live from my house, quarantined because of the coronavirus. And on this episode, I'm going to continue reading the short story that we started in the last episode called Sisters. And if you remember from where we left off, there is a comrade of Kolontai who has come to her to find some advice because of a unhappy marital situation that she is in and the fact that she's just recently lost a job because she couldn't find anybody to take care of her sick daughter and then her daughter died and now she's sort of homeless and destitute. And before I continue the story, I think it's really important to talk a little bit about the NEP, which is the new economic policy that Lenin introduced after the Civil War was over. Basically, after World War I and the Civil War and the famine, the Soviet economy was in a shambles. And Lenin basically reintroduced markets and decided that state-owned enterprises, so the the enterprises would still be state-owned, but they would be now operated on a profit basis. And Lenin hoped that this would be a temporary measure and that the profit incentive would help get the Soviet economy jump-started. And you will hear in the short story reference to the NEP men, NEP men, NEP men they were called, And these are people who were profiting from this new way of organizing the economy. This is where the idea of state capitalism probably originates. People talk about the Soviet Union, which is the idea of state ownership of the means of production, but the profits, it's still, they don't really get rid of the profit motive. And, And Lenin understood that they needed to keep the profit motive in order to basically get people to work again, to get the peasants to to sell their grain, to grow their grain, to get the workers, you know, to, to, to actually go to work and actually do things. You know, one of the problems, especially at this period of time, was in giving workers control of the factories. Not surprisingly, workers decided in, to give themselves days off and to give themselves higher wages without actually producing. And so there were all sorts of problems in trying to suddenly move from a market economy or a quasi-market economy, really Russia was kind of a feudal economy with little bits of capitalism sprinkled in upon it uh, to move to a socialist economy almost overnight. Like the Bolsheviks had these really grand designs, but they didn't have the ability to implement their plans because Russia was a very poor country. And as I've said many times, they suffered these various catastrophes in the immediate years before and after the revolution. And so Many people, especially old Bolsheviks and and left Bolsheviks like Kolontai, were very much opposed to the reintroduction of market economy and reintroduction of profits. Kolontai saw this as a betrayal of the revolution and particularly a betrayal of women, of, of Russian women and Soviet women who would lose their jobs and be pushed out once the profit motive was reintroduced. And during this period of time, during the NEP, many, many women were made destitute. And the idea that women could be taken care of by men, that you could go back to a sort of traditional family and that women would take care of the children and men would support them, was sort of reintroduced as kind of a measure to help get this market economy kind of jump-started. So this is a really important context for the story that I'm going to be continuing reading right now.
On one occasion, he had to go away on an assignment for the company and spent three months away with some NEP men. When he returned, she immediately sensed something about him that grated on her. He seemed like a stranger to her. He didn't listen to her stories and barely looked at her. He'd taken to wearing stylish clothes and even started using perfume. He no longer spent any more time than he had to at home. That was the beginning of everything. He'd never been a drinking man, not even on holiday. But then, in the old days of the Revolution, rushed off their feet, it would never have occurred to them to drink. Now, this had changed. The first occasion when he came home drunk, she'd been worried for him rather than for herself. She thought it would damage his reputation. Next morning, she started remonstrating with him, but he sat there drinking his tea in total silence. Then, without a word in reply, he left the house. She was miserable, but comforted herself with the thought that he was probably too ashamed to discuss it. Three days later, he came home drunk again. She was now very distressed. Perhaps she would have to accompany him on his evening jaunts in future to prevent this. It was an unpleasant prospect. He was a sweet man, but this was just disgusting. Next morning, she was anxious to have a talk with him, but no sooner had she started speaking than he turned on her with a look filled with such loathing that she felt shattered. The words froze on her lips. He saw her as his enemy. He began increasingly to come home drunk. One day she could endure it no longer and decided to stay at home in order to confront him. She waited until he was sober and started appealing to him, saying everything she'd been bottling up, that they couldn't live like this, that they couldn't continue to be friends if there was only one thing which kept them together, sharing the same bed. She poured out her feelings about his drunkenness. She warned him, threatened him, tried to shame him, and she cried. He heard her out and began trying to justify himself. She didn't understand, he said. He was obliged to keep company with the nep men. It was expected of him. There was no other way to do business. Then, after thinking for a moment, he told her that this sort of life wasn't to his liking at all. He begged her not to distress herself and admitted that she was right. When it was time for him to leave, he came up to her, held her head, and looked into her eyes, kissing her as he always used to do. Her mind at rest, she went happily to work that day. But before the week was out, her husband again came home drunk. On this occasion, when she tried to protest, he banged the table, saying, It's none of your business. Everyone lives like this. And if you don't like it, nobody's keeping you here. So saying, he left the house. And all day she felt as if a stone was weighing down her heart. Had he really stopped loving her? Should she leave him? That evening, however, he came home unexpectedly early. He was sober, apologetic, and humble. They spent the whole evening talking, and once more relations between them became easier. She came to understand how difficult it was to exercise restraint in that sort of company that he kept. Those people just threw their money around, and it was very awkward to let them outdo him. He told her a great deal about the Nep men about their wives and their women, about how they did business and how difficult it was to detect the real proletarians amongst all those sharks. You always had to be on your guard with them, he said. She was very depressed by what he told her, 
more depressed than she'd ever been in the whole course of the revolution. It was at this point that she discovered that she was to be made redundant. Her anxieties were now very serious. But when she told her husband, he was quite unperturbed by the news, saying that it might even be for the best. She could spend more time at home and attend properly to the housework. At that moment, our flat looks like nothing on earth, he said. We certainly couldn't entertain a respectable guest here. Amazed by his attitude, she began to protest, but he merely said, well, that's your affair. I'm not standing in your way. You can work if you want to, and he went out. She was very disturbed that her husband had so misunderstood her and apparently taken offense, but she nevertheless decided to stand up for herself. She went to see her comrades at work and argued with them that they should give her her job back. They were finally persuaded to keep her on for the time being. But as soon as she settled that problem, her daughter fell ill. One night I was sitting with my sick child, feeling dreadfully lonely and troubled, when the doorbell rang, she said. I went to open it, assuming it would be my husband, glad that he was back and that at least I'd be able to share my unhappiness with him, at least if he was sober. But when I opened the door, I just couldn't believe my eyes. Who was this creature with him? A young woman with rouge on her cheeks, evidently rather drunk. Now be a nice wife and let me in, he said. I've brought a girlfriend round. Don't take offense. I'm no worse than anyone else. We two are going to have some fun and you're not to interfere. I realized how drunk he was. He could barely stand upright, but my knees were trembling. I let them into the dining room where my husband usually spent the night these days on the sofa, and I went straight back to my daughter. I locked myself in and just sat there, completely stunned with misery. I didn't really feel angry with him. What can you expect from someone who's so drunk? I just felt terribly hurt. What was more, I could hear everything that was going on in the next room. If I hadn't had to attend to my sick daughter, I would have blocked my ears to it. Fortunately, they soon quieted down. They were drunk enough as it was. In the early hours of the morning, I heard my husband take the woman to the door, and then he went back to sleep. As for me, I didn't go to bed at all and just sat there, thinking. That evening, my husband once again came home earlier than usual. We had not seen each other all day, and I deliberately greeted him coldly and avoided looking at him. He began to sort through his papers. Neither of us said a word, but I saw that he was looking closely at me. Let him, I thought. Most likely he'll pretend now to be sorry and ask me to forgive him, so he can just go on doing the same thing. I'm not taking any more of this, I thought. I'm going to leave him. But oh, how my heart was aching. I had once loved him, and there was no point in pretending that I didn't love him still. But now it was all over, and I felt as though he had died, or worse. At least my feelings for him would have survived if he had died. When he saw me putting on my coat as I got ready to leave, he suddenly exploded with rage. He grabbed my arm with such force that he bruised it and tore off my coat, hurtling it to the floor. Why have you suddenly taken into your head to throw a fit of female hysterics? Where do you think you're going? What do you want of me? You'll never find another husband like me. I feed you, dress you, you want for nothing. Don't you dare criticize me. I have to live this way if I'm going to do business. He talked on and on. 
There was no stopping him. It was as if the dam had burst and he wouldn't let me get a word in edgewise. At one moment, he would be shouting, venting his rage on me, then on himself, and the next he would be justifying himself and arguing as though his life depended on it. I saw before me a man tormenting himself, and I became so wretched for him that I gradually forgot how unhappy I was. I tried to soothe him and reassure him that things weren't so bad. I told him that the net men were to blame, not him. That evening we made it up once again, but I still felt very bitter when he said that I shouldn't be so angry and resentful at him. How could I have made demands on him when he was so drunk, he asked. I begged him not to drink any more. It's not your bringing home a prostitute that I resent. It's the fact that you let yourself get into such a horrible state, I said. He promised to behave more carefully and to avoid his old companions, but I still felt resentful. It was true, of course, that you shouldn't make demands of someone who's drunk, and maybe he really didn't remember anything that happened, but nonetheless, from that day, something painful nagged away at my heart. I was constantly tormented by the thought that if he loved me as he'd done in the days of the Revolution, he never would have gone looking for another woman. I remembered how, in those days, one of my friends had pursued him. She was much prettier than I, but he had never as so much looked at her. Why couldn't he tell me openly if he no longer loved me? Once I tried to broach this with him, but he just lost his temper, shouting that I was bothering him with my female inanities again, at a time when he was up to his eyes in work and didn't give a damn for women, including me. Then he left the house, leaving me even more depressed. Then the possibility of losing my job came up again. My little girl had been ill all this time, and I'd been missing work. I pleaded with them once again and eventually prevailed upon them to defer my dismissal for the time being. I don't really know what it was I was hoping for, but I just kept stalling. Now, more than ever, I was terrified of becoming dependent on my husband. Life with him was increasingly difficult, and we were gradually becoming complete strangers to one another. We lived in the same flat, and yet knew absolutely nothing about the other's life. He did occasionally look in on our little girl, and I gave up my local work in order to be able to spend more time with her. During this period, my husband drank less and always came home sober, but he totally ignored me. We slept apart. I would spend nights with my daughter while he slept on the sofa. Every so often he would come to me during the night, but there was no pleasure in it, and it only made things more difficult afterwards, because I would feel all the old unhappiness with one more anxiety added to it. He would hold me in his arms, but he never asked me how I was feeling or anything about my life at all. All right, I'm going to stop there for this episode, and I'll continue, probably finish this story in the next episode. This story is a short story called Sisters, and obviously in some ways it's a metaphor. I think the relationship between this woman and her nepman husband is a metaphor for many of the disappointments that people felt after the revolution, after the Civil War had been won and the famine had been survived, that there was this return to capitalism and all the dreams and all the things that they had wanted were slowly, it felt like they were slipping away. And I think Kolontai uses this story really to obliquely and maybe not so obliquely critique Lenin and the other Bolsheviks for this desire to move back to a more capitalist system. 
I mean, what was the revolution for if not to get over capitalism, to abolish capitalism and to start with a new socialist economy? I think, you know, again, in retrospect, you can see that it's not so easy to move immediately from one system to another. And even the Soviets, with all of the power of the state they had, did have to return to some kind of market market socialism or state capitalism or whatever it is that you want to call it in order to sort of get things rolling. And it's really the five-year plans and the brutality of collectivization under Stalin that ends up taking things in a very different way in the Soviet Union. So that's it for this episode. I hope you are all out there safe and healthy and doing the best that you can to survive this once-in-a-century pandemic. I, you know, there are days when I just don't know what to think. I I think I try to be hopeful. I think I was very hopeful in my last episode. I, but I still feel a great pressure, uh, a weight of what is happening in the world and the injustice and the inequality that is so clearly being exposed by what is going on and the, the terrible treatment of the essential workers and the absolute callousness of our political leaders here in the United States who, you know, want to sacrifice lives in order to save the economy. I'm really feeling like something desperately needs to change and it's only a matter of time before it changes and I'm just hoping that we can hold together in some way and that the change will be for the better and not for the worse. I think we're living through a possibly world historic transformation right now. And I just wanna thank you all really for listening and please keep up the good fight. <laughs>